That was a visual of three, two, one. <laughs> Hi! Welcome to This Should Be a Podcast. I'm Jay Boninsinga. Oh, I'm Jill Norton. I'm sorry. I was so <laughs> alarmed by your... Hi! <laughs> like, like you don't Should we be... start over again? No, it's funny. Don't... Okay. It will work good with my pre-conversation. Um, so, uh, but no, hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> good. You're looking good. I love your bling. I'm, I'm digging... It's kind of a podcast bling thing you got going. Which is strange. I know, because no nobody can see no it. No one can see me. But, it's, but like, it's... it's like how you feel on the Well, you inside. are nude with the blue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was good. Um, hi, welcome to This Should Be a Podcast. We're back. It's yeah. only been a month and a half. Yeah, I mean, everything's slower now in the pandemic. It's been a it's been a bitch of a month. Yeah, I mean people aren't <laughs> on top of anything right now. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy, but uh, but we've been talking about it. We haven't forgotten about it. Speaking um, of crazy, uh, <laughs> what are you drinking tonight? Oh, uh, I'm drinking a um, what am I drinking? You made a Cuba Libra. Oh, Cuba Libra. A, a rum and coke. Yeah. How with, are you liking it? With limes. I, I'm digging it. Good. It's I'm having, uh, I wanted to come up with a theme drink for tonight and the world that we're living in right now. So I thought of a dark and stormy. Yeah. Because it's, it's perfect. And it's dark and stormy outside right now. And it's Which I love. the beginning of autumn. It's, it's kind of cozy. Which I love. And also kind of terrifying. <laughs> well, on the positive note, I, I have, like I mentioned that I love this weather even when it's like about yeah. to rain or it's just everything about it right now. i mean maybe a month from now i'll be like so over it it's <laughs> sleeping weather isn't it it is i just i just love it yeah um so yeah so what have we been working on for the last month what have you tell us what you've been doing jay i've been really productive surprisingly productive in this horrendous you know house arrest that we're in because of <laughs> COVID-19, the novel virus. Uh, I keep thinking it's a novel virus, which is kind of ironic because I'm writing a novel. Uh, and I finished a novel, and it's uh, the most important novel of my career, I think, very possibly. Yeah. And it's so important that I can't even talk about it because I signed a non-disclosure agreement. Right. <laughs> but uh, how about you? What have you been working on? Um, I've just been working on... Um... <laughs> I've been busy. My photography, I've been doing a lot of editing and shooting, but um You got a new hairstyle which is like exquisite, stunning. I do. Uh and uh um, new color. Well, yes. not it's yeah. I mean it's a but blend. I'm leaning into the gray. It's a blend. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh it's much better than constantly coloring my hair. Um but other than that, Northwestern is just like, you know, every day it's new information. It's the update the website, update this department, oh, but, wait, but I got my students back, which is the best, so now I'm actually Explain able... to the people what you mean by that, because some people may not know what oh, you're talking true. about, because okay, so... you're not a teacher, right? but it sounds like you're a teacher, no, I'm... <laughs> when you get your students I... back. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm staff, I work for the marketing department for student affairs at Northwestern at North... University, Big Ten University, okay. I'm speaking over you again, sorry. <laughs> Uh, and I, and we have, it's just myself and another, um, full time. And then we have a bunch of students who do all the work and they're really talented and very cool. And, and, but with the pandemic, we lost them at spring break last year and they never came back. And, um, and then all summer we weren't able to have students. So it was just Jessica and I doing everything by ourselves. So now that we have students back who can help me. But you don't have to be around them. No, no, no. We're all Thank doing God. it. We're all remote. Yeah. So that's cool. Because yeah. students are little petri dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But anyway, but so but it's actually been nice to get like been able to finish a list of things to do on my page. It's like wow, I haven't done this in months. So um, anyway, that's um, and I've been playing my tennis and cool. Just trying to stay uh, sane in this insane right, right. universe that is happening right right now. Um. So. Uh, should we jump right into the story portion of the podcast? Sure, if you're ready. Yeah, of course. I'm always ready. I was born ready, Jill. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, Jay's going to talk about what he's going to read for us today. Well, I'm reading a, a story 
from a book called Shadow Show, Stories in Celebration of Ray Bradbury, edited by the great Sam Weller and the great Mort Castle. These are two people who are very, uh, you know, influential in my writing life. They're both teachers. They're both great writers. Um, and Sam is Ray Bradbury's, was Ray Bradbury's biographer. And for those of you who've never heard of Ray Bradbury, he is, a, a, you know, one of the legends in literature and especially in my field, which is science fiction, horror, and fantasy. He, he was a giant. And um, I, I, you know, w was very moved when I was asked to contribute a story for this amazing book, which includes stories by people like Margaret Atwood, Neil Gaiman. You've heard of Neil Gaiman, haven't you? Fucking Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Hill, Inside Stephen Brain. King's son, Harlan Ellison, Alice Hoffman. This is an amazing... I don't know how the hell I got in this group, but, you know, I, I'm going to read this story, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. So I'm just going to start, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, so this story is called Heavy. At one of the tallest buildings in Los Angeles, the contractor arrives after dark. Riding the crystalline glass elevator up to the lavish, gleaming spires of the upper floors, where the law offices and consultants burn the midnight oil to finance their BMWs and alimony payments, the contractor finds room 1201 and pauses. He unsheathes his browning 9mm semi-automatic from its holster inside his sport coat. He calmly screws the silencer into the muzzle, checks the magazine, then moves his 6'6", 260-pound frame through the doorway and into the richly appointed outer office of Zuckerman Golden Fischl Artist Management. Over the bubbling fish tanks and frothing infinity fountain, the contractor hears the shrill voice of Marvin Zuckerman drifting out of his opulent inner office. Morris, she happens to be a very talented young lady, and this offer is unacceptable, a disgrace even, a dishonor to her fine... The contractor steps into Zuckerman's inner sanctum, holding the browning at his side like a parcel. The agent raises one hand as if to say, give me a second, while continuing to chatter on his wireless headset. Okay, so she's had a few problems with OxyContin. Morris, she has lower back pain. Excuse me, the contractor interjects, squeezing the gun. Hold on a second, Morris, Zuckerman looks up. Uh, I had the pastrami awry and the German potato salad, and I hope you left the mayo off this time, because I'm going to need you to move away from the window, the contractor says, now aiming the gun at the general vicinity of Zuckerman's toupee. The realization on Marvin Zuckerman's face could be etched over a painting of Edvard Munch's The Scream, the way his mouth goes slack, and his droopy, bloodshot eyes widen. The headset falls from his ear and clatters to the floor. <sighs> Who's, who sent you? Was it, was it Schachter at Universal? Move away. What, what, was, it, was it the Tom Cruise disaster? From the window. As Zuckerman slowly rises, the spark of terror in his eyes kindles into something like inspiration. Like the look of a rat, suddenly faced with the prospects of gnawing off its own leg to escape a trap. Somewhere deep in his primordial brain stirs his instinct, as innate as the migratory patterns of birds, that everything is negotiable. Okay, okay, you've, 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 you've come to whack me, I understand that, but, but before you do, may I ask, if you'll pardon my impertinence, have you ever done any acting on film I'm talking about? Because what I'm seeing here, and you must understand this is my business, and 
you have something extraordinary in the way you carry yourself. And the way you handle that firearm, and if I may be so bold, I think you make Robert De Niro look like RuPaul. And forgive me for having a natural propensity for commerce, but I think I could make you a significant amount of money in this business they call show. But of course, that would necessitate my not being whacked at this time. So I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. The pause that follows as the contractor ponders the little toupee-wearing agent, feels longer to Zuckerman than it takes glaciers to cleave mountains. If you do not move away from the window, the contractor finally explains with the grudging patience of a dog trainer, I will relocate the back of your skull to that far wall over there by that nice Picasso. Marvin Zuckerman edges around the desk with hands raised and mouth working. I, 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 have, I have a daughter in Boca Raton, if I may be specific. She's in Hebrew college, so, so please, please, she's studying to be a rabbi, a saint, this girl. And if I may add at this juncture that I am also supporting a little boy in, in, in boarding school. He's ADD, and he's got, shut your face. The contractor holds the business end of the browning, inches away from the hyperactive mouth of Marvin Zuckerman. I, I have money. Zuckerman trembles now, his voice crumbling. Not to be supercilious or presumptuous in any way, but I would like to add at this point that I have a ridiculous amount of quiet. The bark of the contractor's sandpaper basso profundo voice turns Zuckerman's expression to jelly. All the false confidence, the, the used car dealer twinkle, the always selling alter cocker shtick, all of it transforms right then into the look of a whipped basset hound. On Zuckerman's face is now written the end of the universe. Ah, oh, Christ, the contractor sighs the gun wavering slightly. Enough already! The contractor finally pulls the trigger and a small flag on a tiny pin pops out of the Browning's muzzle, which says, surprise on one side and happy birthday on the other. They come flooding into the office, the entire staff, even Mrs. Merriweather, the former receptionist with the cat's eye glasses and gallstones, whom, by the way, Zuckerman had assumed was dead, two surviving partners in golf pants and Rolexes, three junior agents, an anorexic secretary, a pair of slacker grad student readers, an old lady with blue rinse hair, and a six-figure-a-year accountant with a Perkadan habit. This motley group could make an alarming racket. They hoop and they holler and they sing happy birthday and break out the Dom Perignon and on a small cart they roll in a cake in the shape of a tombstone with the inscription, here lies Hollywood's number one asshole. And all the while, everybody studiously pretends not to notice the evidence of post-traumatic stress on Zuckerman's face. Zuckerman's, Zuckerman considers surprise parties thinly veiled acts of passive aggressiveness and hostility. And God knows there's enough animosity around this place to wallpaper Bin Laden's cave. After an hour of tippling and off-key crooning and gossip mongering and chortling at bad jokes, Mrs. Merriweather is the one who finally broaches the subject. You do realize that everyone got a huge kick out of the look on your puss at the end there, she says to Zuckerman over by the potted ficus. Yeah, yeah, really had me going there, Zuckerman concurs sourly. Who's the golem, anyway? Zuckerman jerks his thumb at the leviathan in the J.C. Penney sport coat skulking all alone in the corner. The contractor stands there like a dime store Indian, staring into his paper cup. Somewhere in his late sixties, the man has a face no mother could love. 
a road map of creases circumnavigating a pair of eyes like smoldering craters formed by meteors. Poor fella, Mrs. Merriweather says. He used to be somebody. As for instance, you're in the picture business, Marvin, for God's sakes. Don't you recognize the man? They said you wouldn't recognize him, but I didn't believe it. You want to give me a hint, or is this 20 questions? 1962, New Jersey Nocturne, Alan Ladd and Barbara Stanwyck mean anything to you? Never saw it. That gentleman over there is Haywood Allerton. The name rings no bells for Zuckerman. And so, Marvin, once upon a time, that man was the greatest heavy in Hollywood. With a shrug, staring at the giant with the ruined face, Zuckerman says, What makes him a poor fella? I'm the guy got buffaloed. Mrs. Merriweather lowers her voice, as though imparting something unseemly. Poor guys in stage four, I'm told. Pancreatic cancer, inoperable. Zuckerman thinks about this, sips his champagne, thinks about it some more, then decides to investigate further and walks over to the Colossus. <laughs> you, you got me, Zuckerman says to the giant, with as much conviviality as he can muster. Not since I read my prenup with my third wife have I been that petrified. All at once, as though by some stroke of magical alchemy, the giant's face changes from its natural repose of sinister menace into a warm, open look of empathy, a transformation not unlike Godzilla pausing to help an old lady across the street. I, I, I feel terrible about what I did, Mr. Zuckerman. Ah, don't sweat it. I will admit to you that I needed the money. Zuckerman waves his hand. No harm done. I wouldn't harm a flea, Mr. Zuckerman. I have insurance issues, is the thing. Completely understandable, Zuckerman assures the man. I meant what I said, however, about your unique style. Turns out, if I may be so bold as to pat myself on the back, I was correct in my assessment of your unique proclivities. Allerton looks down shyly tries to stifle a smile, jerking at the corners of his intimidating face. I did make a few pictures a long time ago, he says, but nobody wants an old tough guy no more. Zuckerman gets an idea. Maybe the idea comes because Zuckerman has found himself staring into the abyss that night. Maybe it comes because he had been thinking about God, but whatever the source, it strikes him right then, as all his epiphanies do, in the scrotum, then traveling up the base of his spine to the core of his midbrain. It would not only be a challenge, but would also perhaps be an opportunity for Zuckerman to do something outside the realm of lies, exploitation, greed, and deception that customarily govern his daily existence. Perhaps it would be an opportunity to atone, to get himself on track with the Torah, to fulfill a mitzvah, an act of kindness. Yeah, an act of kindness. After a dramatic pause, Marvin Zuckerman says to the great monolith of an old man, maybe if you'll pardon my presumptuous, you just haven't had the right representation. If you went to the movies between 1960 and 1980, you most likely would have seen, at one point or another, the inimitable, craggy face of Haywood Allerton. Still a relatively young man for much of this period, but ageless in his inchoate menace. Something haunting the edges of a great film. He sometimes provided foils for cardboard heroes in, let us say, less than great movies. 
Allerton, for one brief and shining moment, was the go-to heavy for all the studios, both major and minor. His greatest role, perhaps, was as the redneck racist who roughs up Pam Greer in the blaxploitation classic, Honey Child, Avco Embassy, 1971. He also made his mark as the brain-damaged child murderer in Orson Welles' Little Sea Noir, Coffin Not Included, RKO, 1974. Allerton also chilled audiences in such diverse cinematic fare as Monster Train, Rumble in the Jungle, The Copperheads, and As the Eagle Flies, the cult World War II actioner with Burt Reynolds and Twiggy. Alas, in today's Hollywood, a new frontier of digital downloads and flavors of the millisecond viewed on handheld devices and bathroom stalls a man of Allerton's special qualities could barely land a hemorrhoid commercial. Evil is no longer essayed by the human face. It is created in the lab through CGI and motion capture. Over the next few weeks, Zuckerman stops counting all the doors slammed in his face. But he will not give up. He will not give up. Because after all, this is a mission from God, a holy mitzvah, which leads to an interesting phenomena. For the first time in his shallow, manipulative, contemptuous life, Marvin Zuckerman actually experiences something like real affection for another human being. In the tradition of many great Hollywood heavies, Rondo Hatton, William Bendix, Margaret Hamilton, Richard Widmark, Hayward Allerton is secretly a pussycat, a softy, a tender soul, with nary a wicked thought in his head, and he begins to grow on Zuckerman. Complicating matters is the fact that the gentle giant is getting weaker and weaker by the day. The malignant cells erasing the man's remaining time on earth faster than the nitrate fading from the celluloid of his old films. Eventually, Zuckerman feels compelled to maximize as many of the man's waning days as possible. So the two mismatched chums become fixtures down at Molly Malone's on Fairfax. They dine on mountains of corned beef and locks at Cantor's Deli. They go to the Hollywood Wax Museum, Chinatown, and Griffith's Observatory, where Allerton, in a peak of excitement, names every star in the firmament after an old Hollywood heavy. Elijah Cook, Jr. There's Charles Napier. Over there, there's Sidney Greenstreet. There's John Vernon. There's Jack Elam, Dub Taylor, Vernon Dent, and on and on. The two of them also take to playing golf on Sundays at Zuckerman's Beverly Hills Club, spending the lazy hours trudging the fairways, talking, getting to know each other's deepest ruminations and regrets. In fact, it is on one of these Sundays that everything changes for Zuckerman. That's a honey of a shot there, Allerton says encouragingly from the edge of the 18th green. Of course, it's a lie. Zuckerman's whiffed putt just skirted the edge of the hole and has shot off into the sand. Tell me something, Haywood, Zuckerman says, retrieving his ball from the trap. You're so... Not like the heavies you played. Did you enjoy it? The glory days I'm talking about? All the villains you played? You want to know the truth? The grizzled old monolith replies as he limps over to his ball. Almost skin and bones now. He's moving slower than usual today. The pain medication fighting a losing battle. Staunching the tide of agony seeping up through his innards. The putter... Looks like a chopstick in his gigantic, gnarled hands as he towers shakily over the golf ball. I did enjoy it, being the heavy. I did. It was almost like... He pauses, thinking, staring downward, teetering, holding himself up as though the putter were a cane. The guys I was playing were bad apples, sure, but they... They... I guess what I'm trying to say is my favorite part was when they got their comeuppance. When they took their medicine, you know? 
They looked the good guy in the face. They always did that. And they accepted the, the what do you call it, the, the consequences. The consequences. I don't know why that was so important to me. I guess that's the only part I almost, I almost kind of miss. Putting the, uh, what do you call it, the punctuation at the end of the picture. Zuckerman has no idea what the big guy is talking about, but goes ahead and says, that is an interesting angle on things, my friend. And it brings to mind that great scene in Haywood. Haywood? Zuckerman drops his putter. Haywood? Haywood! Once in a great while, in the great Muir Woods, many miles north of here, a mighty redwood, suffering from blight, tumbles over in a great heaving plunge, shaking the earth and sending up a plume of debris. When Hayward Allerton finally succumbs to the pain and he goes down, hitting the green with all his weight, the manicured, perfectly landscaped, rarefied ground of the Pine Ridge Country Club trembles with similar seismic vibrations. Zuckerman spares no expense. He has Allerton taken to the best facility money can buy, the Samuel Oshin Cancer Institute at Senior Sinai, not far from Zuckerman's stately Beverly Hills mansion, which was once owned by Douglas Fairbanks, by the way. Zuckerman demands immediate attention and puts everything on his visa. The doctors run the unconscious behemoth through a battery of tests and conclude that Allerton is in his final hours, his immune system shutting down, malabsorption syndrome making him a candidate for feeding tubes, and the administrator at Cedars informs Zuckerman that hospice is the only answer, and it's a miracle the big guy was still walking around. And how about this chilly autumn weather we're having? A widower with a lapsed Screen Actors Guild membership, Allerton has no insurance, no immediate family other than two estranged daughters living in the Midwest, both of whom are unable to get to the L.A. for another week or two. So Zuckerman decides to have Allerton move to Zuckerman's sprawling Tudor mansion on Cannon for home hospice care. It is there, five days later, in the elegant parlor in the rear of the house, around which French windows look out on a lovely grove of avocado trees and the hummingbirds play in the wisteria that Zuckerman realizes what he has to do. So, uh, your daughter, the older one, uh, Nancy's her name? She, she claims you never had a will, Zuckerman says to the dying man. Nestled in the folds of a massive orthopedic hospital bed that was brought in by four burly orderlies earlier that week, hooked to a space shuttle's worth of equipment, Allerton drifts in and out of consciousness, his face a gaunt, gray, sunken mask of torture. The pain constantly ebbs and flows, more flowing than ebbing lately, and it is agonizing for Zuckerman to watch. I, I, I don't know if you hear me anymore, but I, I just want you to know I got a plan. Zuckerman sits on the edge of a chair next to the bed, his hand clutching the bed rail so tightly his knuckles whiten. Allerton's eyelids flutter, his lips peel away from clenched yellow teeth. It is unclear whether this is an indication that he understands human speech or he is simply breathing in pain or both. It is also unclear how long the machines will continue to keep him alive now. Maybe days, weeks, God forbid months. The former folk artist of evil, the greatest heavy ever, a man from a bygone era of analog projectors now floating in a limbo of misery, kept alive by the same kind of advanced computer technology that replaced his cinematic archetype. I'm still your manager, by God, Zuckerman says, and I'll manage this, if you'll pardon my expression, like a professional. Very slowly, with the feeble, tentative shakiness of a wounded sparrow, Allerton's huge hand moves to the bed rail, 
and covers Zuckerman's hand. The gesture leeches tears from the jaded, cynical, heartless agent. Why? Why, if you'll pardon my impertinence, did you do this to me? Why did you come into my life when I was minding my own business? The sobbing starts. I got, I got three ex-wives hate my guts. I got four kids I barely even know. And you got to be my friend now? Maybe the best friend I ever had? You got to tear my heart out like this, you prick! Marvin Zuckerman lowers his head and lets the sobs rock through him. At length, the crying passes, and he looks up and says softly, Don't worry, Haywood, old pal of mine. I got a plan. At one of the most lavish mansions in Beverly Hills, the second contractor arrives after dark. Slipping through the shadows of avocado trees, where stars of the silent screen once frolicked and strolled, he finds the rear parlor window and pauses. He checks the small leather pouch in his black suit coat, checks the instruments tucked inside it, then pries the window glass open and stealthily climbs inside the house. The man moves to the side of the hospital bed and looks down at its occupant. He said to make it fast and painless, the man says, reaching into the pouch and preparing the hypodermic. Who am I to argue? You get all kinds in this business. This man is the real thing, the banality of evil incarnate. He has the face of a hairless mouse and dead black shoe button eyes. Those at death's door often experience a final moment of lucidity. The big, emaciated man on the bed opens his eyes, gazes up, looks his executioner in the face. The dying man does not look away. The needle glistens, shedding a tear of fluid. Although hard to read and impossible for this mousy hitman to understand, the man on the bed accepts the consequences of what happens next. A good heavy does not look away. He accepts the consequences. The needle goes in, punctuating the end of Allerton's suffering. It's over within seven seconds. Outside the mansion, on his way back to his innocuous little two-door sedan, the second contractor passes a shadowy figure wringing his hands at the front of the driveway. Is it done? The figure asks. The mousy gentleman turns and approaches Marvin Zuckerman, and in the pitiless cold darkness, he says, Oh yeah, we're good. Zuckerman hands over the envelope of cash, an amount he had raised in trademark fashion from the insurance reimbursement for the home care expenses after putting Allerton on the agency's payroll. Pausing to thumb through the bills, the mousy man says, Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, we agreed on 20K. Uh, yeah, it's uh, short my commission, Marvin Zuckerman explains. 15%. The man in black just stares at the grief-stricken toupee-wearing agent. A mitzvah is a mitzvah, but an agent is also an agent. That was awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> I, 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 I'd like to read one little paragraph that I wrote at the end in the book to explain my affinity for Ray Bradbury. It's just a single paragraph, but it might also be of interest. Um, this is at the end of each of these stories. Neil Gaiman and Margaret Atwood, they all put a little paragraph in there to explain what Ray Bradbury meant to them. So this is mine. I remember as a kid carrying Ray's collection, R is for Rocket, around in my Partridge family lunchbox. Flash forward 40 years, 
and I'm now toiling in the vineyards of Hollywood and Publishers Row, and I al and always with that magical Bradburyan inspiration tucked into the back compartment of my creative lunchbox. I now read Ray's stories to my children at bedtime. The other night, I'm reading A Sound of Thunder, and we come to the part where the dinosaur makes its majestic appearance. These words were written in 1952, for God's sake, but they still ring more vividly and three-dimensionally than any CGI. When presented with the chance to create an original crime story, informed by Bradbury, I felt as though I'd been given the shoes from the sound of summer running. The Bradbury mythos came over me in a seizure as I spun my little yarn. The sadness at the core of human nature, the love of the golden age of movies, the scabrous view of capitalism, and the plain, unadorned beauty of friendship. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, I haven't heard all of your short stories, but that's my favorite. Really? Of the ones that I've heard. Aw, yeah. that's lovely of you to say that. That's my favorite, too. I mean... You know, it's being developed into a TV uh, anthology, and I wrote the script for it, which I'm really proud of, too. Um, anyway, uh, you know, we we may get, uh, uh, I'm gonna probably not going to remember his name, the, the, the uh, villain, one of the great villains who played uh, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast on television, R Ron, um, you remember that guy? No. <laughs> you, no? <laughs> so one of our listeners will remember his name's Ron something, but he's he's an amazing villain. You know, villains are a huge part of my life. The villain is something I've always been fascinated by. Villains are, you know, a mysterious, mesmerizing part of our culture, I think. Yeah, I agree. There's one thing, I mean, I knew we would be talking about this, but one thing that I started finding, like, looking at villains through film history was that most of the villains that I found to be, like, my favorite villains, you know, the ones that really are, that you, is that they have, like, a charming factor that you kind of are like them, you're kind of rooting for them in some weird way. Right. Maybe, maybe not always, maybe not rooting for them, but you, but you don't completely hate them and you know sometimes they're the best part of the film right right <clears throat> right right like what who, is what 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 who who is your favorite villain what what character is your favorite villain well um well we talked about this earlier this week but this made me think about it but we were talking about my favorite movie Silence of the Lambs uh and Hannibal Lecter but that made me think about this that you know in the movie you know, Frederick Chilton is the villain. You're, he's the one you hate. You know, you kind of like Lecter. You know, he's, you know, he's funny, he's right. charming, he's, you know, and he's the best part of the film. So there's something, like, I felt like villain-wise, you know, I mean, obviously, like, Buffalo Bill would be, I guess, the villain. But, right, right. <laughs> uh, but I always just thought, like, that Frederick Chilton was really, like, this horrible person. Right. Um. Yeah. Ron you? Perlman. Have you ever heard of Ron Perlman? Sure. He we met him right. one time at a, at a Walker Stalker. Yes. Um. Yeah. He he his you know he's a, he's a great villain. He's played Hellboy. So is Hannibal Lecter your favorite villain? Uh, not. I guess I guess so. Just in the sense that it's it's my favorite movie. But I have several others that I feel like are like throughout films that I love characters that I love on TV as well as uh, film. So one that goes back and it's sort of in the spirit of October, which it's the first weekend of October, but Halloween, which was my first like scary movie that I loved and the Michael Myers character. Wow. Cool. So, um, and so I kind of like looked up just to find out like a little more about, you know, him and the background. But, um, you know, the things that were interesting about him was uh, that he was silent. He was a silent killer. Um, that, right. And then this was like a quote from what I read, but the, took an old William Shatner mask and non-threatening attire into one of the most iconic right. killer characters in cinema history. Yeah. Um, no personality or much backstory at all. So, 
and still was very successful. Yeah, good point. It's a, it's a you know he he became hugely popular uh, and didn't say a word. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do you remember the beginning where they show his backstory? Yeah. 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 But it's very little, though. They don't really right. dwell on well, it. Well, it's told through his point of view. You don't even really see his face. Right. Until the very end of the opening, and then you see this. He's just a normal little boy. Right. Yeah. But it, but Donald Pleasance, when he says, it's his eyes. The dead eyes. There's no life behind them. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. All um, right. Who else? Uh, well, I had to... Uh, Put in Voldemort from yeah Harry Potter. Fantastic villain. Yeah. He shall not be named. Right. Um, <laughs> and then so I looked that up too, and it said, um, and you may know this already, but um, they were talking about where the name came from, and they said uh, it was, par you know, partially possibly inspired by decaying at Edgar Allan Poe's character M. Voldemar, uh, and then. Mort means death. Right. And yeah. then um, and then Rowling loves French, and so she, so in translation, it's flight of death. Wow. So. Yeah, she, her genius, part of her genius, she, she, there's myriad parts of her genius, but naming, her names are spectacular. Yeah. And that's probably a good, one of the good, uh, asp or, you know, um, requirements of a great villain is to have a great name Hannibal Lecter that's one of the great names of all time I've right. always thought yeah that is yeah um well one thing that I loved that it wrote was um you sense his presence in every shadow on screen which right. I thought was so cool because that's yeah. so true and then I was thinking about um when I was in the hospital last year and that last Sunday that I was there and it was like raining and dark and I watched like the, all the Harry Potter movies one right after another, so I was it was completely like built into my head. Um, so anyway, so that's one. Um, I mean, do you have any? You can throw some in here too. Well, um, you know, a great villain to me is uh, partially good. You can't have a great villain and be all evil. Even Voldemort has a vulnerability or a weird aspect to him that's like you know vulnerable uh i don't know about michael myers but michael myers has a backstory you know the great villains have some kind of humanity to them hannibal lecter he admired clarice starling right you know he was offended when she was you know attacked by you know right. uh migs multiple migs right you know but really like the um, more you think about it he's not He's really not the villain in the movie because he's, you know, behind bars the whole time. Right, but he, he ha his, his whole pedigree is he's one of the great villains of all time because, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when he first appeared in uh, a book that started the series that he's in, which was called um, Red Dragon, Right. he's only in, in the story for like 11 pages. And he was, you know... A revelation even to the author himself Thomas Harris he Thomas Harris has said Hannibal Lecter just jumped off the page spoke to me you know been, you know uh, I'm again I'm paraphrasing right but you know I think it I think that's part of the thing is a great villain has to be admirable is there something admirable about them right like uh, you know who's who's the great British actor that was in Die Hard and said cowboy you're going to die. Good luck to you. Uh, ru ru um, you don't. You don't know who no, I'm talking about. No, but you know like in, in my like research, I probably passed that, and I just I, I never watched the Die Hard movies really. So, but you remember that villain? Not really. No. Oh, okay. I'm trying to. Re you know, the, all these villains are sexy. They're interesting. Right. You know. Well, you, I can throw back some more. Yeah. Okay. Please do. <laughs> all right. So one uh, was. The Heath Ledger version of the Joker. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it was. Why like, do you think he was so, uh, you know, great as a villain? Well, partially because of Heath Ledger, but. Um, what does that mean? Because you couldn't take your eyes off of him. 
right. and he's you know, scary and just evil and. But he wasn't crazy. pure evil. Right, but he, he had colors to him. Right, but he was but, funny. Right, right, and and you know, right. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, but I, I, that's just like, he was so amazing. I mean, that was one of the movies that at the end, you're just like, what just happened? Like, it was just amazing. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, another one was uh, Max Cady from Cape Fear, the Robert De Niro version. Uh-huh. Right. Because I remembered being Great, seen, great example. Seeing great that example. in a movie theater. Um and I was wearing a leather jacket, and I remember watching it, and it was like 20 minutes into the movie, and I was shivering, like, and I was thinking like I was cold. And all of a sudden, I realized that I wasn't cold, like that I was still wearing my jacket, and that I was scared to death. It was so, he was such a scary character. Right, right. The way that movie was. Have you seen the original? I think I have. Um, yeah. The um, okay, I'm really you know this is terrible during a podcast to be drawing blanks on all these names. Right. Um, boy, <laughs> somebody call in. Well, I, I probably <laughs> and have tell a... us who who played Max <laughs> Cady in the original. Uh, uh, he was amazing. He had did he? Do you remember this tattoo? On the four fingers of the right hand, it said L O V. Yeah. And on the four fingers of the left hand, it says H-A-T-E. Right. Love and hate. Right. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the original Max Cady. Right. Um, Are you Robert, looking it up Ro- right now? Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. <laughs> 1962. <laughs> yeah. This is like, you know, the good thing about podcasts. We can <laughs> secretly be looking these things up to, right. to appear more intelligent than we actually are. Right, but we we kind of look we let the cat out of the bag earlier. Right. Um, so then I'll just kind of go through a couple other ones, and we don't have to go too into it. But um, one that I loved was um, the Hans Landa character from Inglorious Bastards, the Fantastic. Christopher Waltz. Yes. Because he was also fantastic. Like, he, you know, he's kind, he's kind of charming. He's charming. He's kind of, yeah. He's funny. There's, he he's has like, admirable traits. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, like psychopath, but charming. Um, yes. And then the way um, he would say to the guy. Of course you can smoke. It is your house. Right. You can smoke. Enjoy. <laughs> Feel free. Be comfortable. This is your house. I'm just right. visiting. Right. I'm going to kill you brutally in a minute, but go ahead and smoke. Right. Yeah, it, Enjoy great it. Great performance. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, Christoph Waltz. Yes. Is that his name? And then... Um, great examples. Gordon Gecko from Wall oh, Street. Fantastic. Ex- yeah. Great because, examples. Because again, you kind of, yeah, you admire him. You admire him. He's, he's slimy. He's cool though. He's kind of yeah, like, he's cool. Badass he's and, got a giant uh, phone and it was so <laughs> all right, portable it, phone. Right. It was so the eighties, like the whole, <laughs> right. Right. The whole greed is right. Good. His hair style was eighties. Right. Like the slicked Sus- back hair. The suspenders. Suspenders. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, that was the whole, and just the whole thing. Like, you know, the whole Daryl Hannah decorating, right? So, eighties. It was just right. hilarious. Anyway, but you um, know, by the way, I'm reading um, the Oliver Stone biography, the memoir, yeah, and it's really fascinating because you know that the the, the um, Hal Holbrook character mm-hmm. who, who would say things like, you know, Bud, the thing about money, it makes you do things you wouldn't normally do. Right. <laughs> Remember that guy? Of course. That guy was based on, uh, Lou, I think his name was Lewis Stone, Oliver Stone's father. Oh, wow. He was he was a broker. He worked on Wall Street. Oh. Did you know that? No. Okay, stick with me, and you're going <laughs> to learn all these little tidbits. <laughs> um, and so now, now I have... Um, you'll stick with me, won't you? Please? Of course. Say you'll stick with me. Of course, always. <laughs> um, and then I thought I'd throw in two TV characters. Good. And one I felt like I had to mention was Negan, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Right. Again, you kind of love him. I mean, every time he came on the screen, even though he was like cutting people's heads off, I was sort of smiling and hearts. Right. <laughs> Just something, you know. For those of you who have been living in a cave for the last 11 years, the, the, that that's from The Walking Dead. Right. <laughs> he was like the main character in the comic book that was like, everybody wanted, when's Negan going to come? And then all of a sudden he right. made this huge appearance. Anyway, um, and, then my, and then my last one, and one of my favorites is Villanelle from Killing Eve. 
Great list. Jody That's Com a fantastic Comer, tell, you love her. She's tell like, us a little bit about her. What well, is it that makes her a great villain? And what is what is that that show about? She well, she's, in a nutshell. Well, it's basically a woman who's sort of a, a you know an assassin. Assassin, um, and she's kind of um, she works for some, some unknown group of people who are known as the Twelve, and they just give her like assignments, like mm -hmm. on the postcard. They don't know she doesn't know who they are, um, and then um, Sandra. Sandra O. <laughs> yeah, Sandra yeah. O. Sorry, Sandra. We're um, really having trouble with names, so bear with us. No. Um, Do you remember my name? Because <laughs> I don't remember your name, but you're cute. I call you. I... I call you baby. <laughs> um, I call you gorge. But anyway, but but you know, it, and it's I can't get too into it because it's a long thing. But going back to Villanelle, is that she's just badass. She's cool. She dresses like amazing. Like her clothing is just over the top, and she's. And she's fascinating. She's yeah, just flamboyant. Fascinating. Right. 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 And total smartass. And, and yeah, yeah, that's another thing maybe that I never thought of this, but a great villain needs to enjoy their work. Right. But also, you know? but also the whole concept of Sandro's character, uh, Eve, chasing after her, following her, and she's kind of becomes obsessed with her because she's so intriguing, and you know, and they end up having like a. Strange relationship. Anyway, so those are my those are my villains. Uh, how about Bond villains? Do you like Bond villains? I like, like I like Goldfinger. Yeah, I mean I don't. I mean I like Bond films. I really do. I love, but I'm more like, you know, Roger Moore, Sean Connery. I don't really, the the villains on those aren't really. I haven't seen one in a long time, other yeah. than Daniel Craig. Well, they but the Bond villains. You know, there was a formula for Bond villains. But they always, um, they always uh, had James Bond on, you know, uh, on a rack, tied up, bound and gagged, with a laser beam heading toward his his his, you know, his groin, and he's going to die any minute. And as they're doing that, they they're they're explaining their whole mad plan to destroy the world. And they're explaining how they're going to do everything and what they're going to do to James Bond and how the laser is going to cut him in half. And it always gives James Bond time to escape. Like, right. I found that, you down, know. But down to like a second. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if I'm a fan of Bond villains. I, I, I think they're kind of, you know, uh, arch and, and kind of, comical and I don't, I don't think they're right although there was a guy named odd job who was a big <laughs> big um asian thug who had a bowler hat and it had a oh, razor right. sharp edge to it so he would like right throw it at people <laughs> right. i love that guy <laughs> but see that's just I, lo I love that you remember the guy with the bowler hat is a weapon right exactly that's yeah Jay's a big it's all about the bowler, the bowler hat <laughs> It's all about the bowler hat. Yeah. <laughs> I love the bowler hat. Jay wears a bowler hat on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put it in perspective. Um, so, um, yeah, so uh, uh, what else? Well, I, you know, find it interesting you mentioned Jeffrey Dean Morgan um, or JDM yes. as the people in the know in the walker you know, universe, As the, fans the, the walking them. dead universe, JDM. Um, I don't know him as well as some of the other villains on the show, but I have gotten to know a couple of villains on the show pretty well. And it, and it probably partially inspired that story because they are the sweetest, friendliest people I've ever met. And when they're on screen, they're chilling, they're terrifying. But they have all the attributes of great villains. You know, Robert Kirkman created you know, the one of the great villains in the comic book, but he even became even greater when this British actor named David Morrissey stepped into the role and he gave him dimensions. He gave him, you know, vulnerability and he was he was a son of a bitch. He was a you know uh sociopath but charming but he yeah and he and he, and he cared he, you know his his little daughter he couldn't let her go 
after she turned into a zombie and everything. It's kind of genius. And that, a lot of that was in the comic book. But the original, this, this goes back to my fascination with villains. My whole life for eight years was giving an arch villain in a comic book a real life. A backstory. Like, a, a backstory in prose, in, in literature, you know. And I'll always forever be, uh, you know, grateful uh, to Robert Kirkman for giving me that amazing eight years of turning this guy into a real person. And it, it and in the bargain, I became really close friends with David Morrissey, who played him on TV. And it, and it, 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 it completely confirmed all the stories I've heard over my life. You know, being a movie junkie as a, from the time I was old enough to walk into a theater. You know, I've always heard the great villains are really sweet, warm, friendly, down-to-earth people in real life. As are horror writers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but, you know, I, I, I'll take it. It's, just, it's a lovely compliment. <laughs> well, on that note, I guess let's just end on something positive. You go yeah. first. Um positive let's see it's not easy to come up with something positive in the world we're living in right now right without <laughs> without offending somebody right exactly <laughs> exactly um i you know you this is an interesting um exercise because i wasn't prepared for this and my, you know being a writer of crime and noir and horror and dark fantasy um, I always think of the worst case scenarios, you know, know. but um, the, to me, the thing that pops into my mind, and I'm warning the listeners, um, it, this is going to get nauseating for a second. Please don't talk about me because you've talked about me like in three of the episodes. I'm sorry, but no. the positive thing that popped into my mind is I have been under you know, quarantine, like locked in a house 24-7, literally 24-7, seven days a week. We are locked into this house, just the two of us, like two little furry laboratory animals. Three. Well, yeah, we have another. <laughs> well, actually, there's more than three usually when she brings one in. Right. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. Um, but yeah, yeah, and look at us. We still like each other. Well, at least I like you. I don't know. You may think I'm disgusting. <laughs> you're, you're ready to sign the divorce papers as soon as we, we end the podcast. No, no. <laughs> I love you. I'm glad we can work ourselves, work together and be in this house. Um, well, um, thank you. And then, well, on that note, my other, one of my favorite things is that because it's fall, my favorite, is that Frida is now like, inside more yeah. hanging out with me when I'm working she's cuddly she's sleeping with me again and that just makes me so happy right that's that's wonderful and then also I just wanted to throw in there a shout out to our our new favorite show Ted Lasso mm. <laughs> because it's just like the happiest sweetest funniest just I can't up, take my eyes off upbeat. it like I wish I we could just watch it all the yeah, time. it's like comfort food. It's so, isn't it? It's, it's like it's like a beautiful, funny, just amazing it's, story. Yeah, it's, it's like it's crafted beautifully. It's acted beautifully. It's amazing. The whole concept is when you describe it to somebody, it really doesn't even do it justice. Like you're a soccer team and a you know right. coach from you know right. Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, that just none good. of it really you know makes sense. But right. that's how great things are. You know, yeah. great villains who are beloved because they're evil <laughs> doesn't make any sense too. But there it is. Right. There's there's a formula. You know. Right. Yeah, it's it's a great show. Ted Lasso. Look it up. It's on Apple TV. Unfortunately, though, for those of you who don't have Apple TV, but it's worth getting Apple TV for that one it, show. I think. Seriously. Yeah. It is. It, it really is. Um, okay, so uh, I think uh, we're good. We're we can. Uh, sign you are off. good. You are good. I, I'm a villain, I think, <laughs> in this household. <laughs> no. um, 
All right, so uh, we'll uh, well done. We'll, see well done, Jill. Yeah, well done, Jay. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mutual admiration society. Are people vomiting yet? Can so, you hear the vomiting coming over the? <laughs> so once again, I will honestly say we will try to do this much more frequently than we do, but I can't promise anything. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> Doing the best we can <laughs> with what we have to work with. <laughs> all right, so uh, so we'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. All right, so all well, right. I, I you know go out and buy Shadow Show. Yes, Shadow Show. Yes, Sam Weller and Mort Castle. Amazing. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Love you. Love you. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by The Riptones. Like everything good, it's on Spotify.